You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I invite you to come up and fill in here. Good morning, my name is Nancy Lindborg. I'm the president here at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I'm delighted to welcome you for uh, our con bipartisan congressional dialogue series. This is a really important platform uh, for members of Congress who are working on critical issues from opposite sides of the aisle to advance their common interest in U.S. national security. And so we're particularly mindful on this very somber anniversary of 9-11 that throughout history, our nation's steepest challenges have really required us to work in a bipartisan manner uh, to advance our common interests. Um, so I thank our congressman for joining us this morning. Um, you know, I think all of us read the papers, and, and it seems like unity and consensus are really hard to come by in politics these days. But our experience is, in fact, that Many members of Congress maintain a really deep commitment to the kind of problem solving that requires bipartisan action. And so it's always encouraging to see that uh, in action. Um, it was this bipartisan spirit that led to the founding of U.S. Institute of Peace in 1984, um, when Congress founded USIP with the mission of preventing and resolving violent conflict around the world. And we do so as an independent, nonpartisan national institute. And we link research with training, with policy and analysis, and direct action in some of the toughest places around the world in support of those who are working to prevent and resolve violent conflict. Um, USIP has also been a long, has a long history of serving as a platform for people with a lot of different views and coming from different sectors to come together and think about what are the best solutions, tackle some of the most challenging foreign policy issues. Um, and that's what brings us here today for, for a very timely and critical conversation um, about US and China relations. We've seen over the past decade the shift uh, in China's actions in the world and in the US-China relationship, especially as China invests heavily in Africa and Asia. Um, we uh, here at USIP lead a series of bipartisan study groups looking at critical aspects of China's growing engagement of the world. And I invite you to check a couple of them out on our website. Uh, one is on China's role in North Korea nuclear and peace negotiations. And the other one is on China's role in Burma's internal conflicts. We are really honored to have with us here this morning two congressional leaders. Congressman Rick Larson from Washington and Congressman Darren LaHood from Illinois to share their experiences and their deep expertise on these issues. Um, Congressman Larson and Congressman LaHood are co-chairs of the US-China Working Group, um, a bipartisan group that was formed in 2005 uh, to enable members of Congress uh, to be more informed about US-China relations. They travel frequently to China, including most recently last March, uh, to engage with a variety of leaders in China on elements critical 
to the U.S.-China relationship. Um, Congressman Larson represents Washington's second district, which includes San Juan and Island counties, uh, as well as other communities in Northeast Washington. And Congressman LaHood represents Illinois' 18th district, which includes the western parts of Illinois and the greater Peoria area. Each of them brings insights that are formed by deep experience. Um, they know firsthand uh, about the China-U.S. relations and broader areas of affairs. And they've served their constituents in U.S. national security with vision, with commitment, and extraordinary leadership. Um, Congressman Larson and Congressman LaHood, thank you so much for joining us. Um, in today's very divisive times, your commitment to working on these issues together is, is really heartening. Um, and uh, it stands as, a, I think, a, a, a symbol of how to make things work to tomorrow's foreign policy leaders. And we have quite a few of them in the audience with us today. So I want to just acknowledge that it's a real pleasure to have students from the University of Washington Bothell uh, joining us here this morning. Um, and we also have a distinguished group of graduate students from Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation here with us today. So we look forward to, to your all's question. Um, and for those following this event online, especially those who are waking up early in Illinois and Washington, um, I invite you to join the conversation on Twitter at USIP using the hashtag BipartisanUSIP. And so with that, please join me in welcoming our two guests. Uh, and uh, each of them will begin our conversation today with opening remarks, uh, starting with Congressman Larson. Please. Thank you, Nancy, and appreciate it. Uh, and uh, who's here from UW-Bothell? Yeah. <laughs> Go dogs! All right. Good to see all of you here, and um, uh, as well, I understand some Stanford folks are here too. So, <laughs> so the Paxwell's represented well here today. Um, so uh, I want to thank the U.S. Institute of Peace for inviting Darren and me to uh, speak. And uh, and someone in the green room pointed out the bipartisan nature of the U.S.-China Working Group, uh, which uh, they said is why uh, Darren and I must have coordinated our our suits this morning. I'm going to make sure we are both wearing gray. Um, but uh, that's just one way we show our bipartisanship in Congress. So for those who, again, who don't know me, I'm Congressman Rick Larson. I represent Washington's second district. So think of north of Seattle, but none of Seattle um, on the map, if you want to think of it that way. That's how I think of it um, as well. Um, but I'm pleased to be here with my friend uh, Darren LaHood from uh, Illinois. Uh, talk about our work on Congress. As noted, uh, the U.S.-China Working Group started in 2005, and uh, Senator, uh, Senator and then former Representative Mark Kirk uh, and I created the Working Group um, then because there was a, a dearth, a lack of nuanced conversation about the uh, relationships that exist between the U.S. and China, and that's, I guess, one theme for everybody, uh, so there's not one relationship that we have with China. There are many different kinds of relationships depending upon the issue that the United States has with China. And so felt there was a need on Capitol Hill to have a forum to talk about, um, about the various issues that the uh, U.S. and China have together. Um, it was a, a, it's a working group to bring information to members of Congress and staff and provide a forum for discussion and dialogue. 
Um, we were there in March. Um, it was my personally my 11th trip to China. And one thing I like to say about uh, traveling to China as a member of Congress is the one thing that you learn when you go to China is that you need to go back to China. Um, it's not enough to go once. Um, and we try to as well get around uh, different areas of the, of the country as well while we're there. Um, but it doesn't just matter to us in this room. It just doesn't matter to Darren and me. It matters to our constituents. Uh, in Washington State, 40% uh, of all jobs uh, are directly tied to trade. Uh, in my county of Snohomish County, uh, which our friends in Bothell know really well, 60% of jobs are directly tied to trade, and it's largely because of the presence, the presence of the um, largest building in the world by volume at the Boeing factory in Everett, Washington. So 60% of all jobs directly tied to trade. So trade uh, with, all, with all countries, but certainly China, uh, China trade is important. And uh, as a result, uh, a lot of my focus has been on, on trade, and I think you'll hear some of that from Darren as well. Um, and, uh, and we're trying to get um, some pretty clear goals uh, established uh, for trade with China right now. And, and these are the issues that we brought up in March. Um, to, and we showed a bipartisan approach to this. This is, I think, an important point in, in March while we were there. We focused on trade. There were two Democrats and four Republicans who went on this trip. And we focused on um, talking about um, the consensus that exists in Congress on what those issues are that we have in the United States uh, with uh, China's trade and economic policies in order to buttress the administration's efforts to try to get a resolution to the current uh, trade war. Uh, one, uh, increased market access for U.S. competitors, um, ending forced tech transfers, uh, stronger um, intellectual property protections, uh, eliminating uh, trade barriers, uh, and then as well um, uh, dealing with the, the forced joint venture uh, issue. Uh, there is a bipartisan support, bipartisan support for these, this trade agenda, uh, although there are differences in how to approach that. Um, but, but we did not get into that discussion with the Chinese. That's a discussion that we have to have in the United States about approaches. But there is, in fact, this consensus on what the problems are with, uh, with trade. I would note, though, because of this um, trade war, um, I, wouldn't, I would argue it's not really working for us right now. Um, uh, since the uh, trade war began, think about this in early March of last year, um, before the first tariffs really went into place. The average tariff on goods, according to the Peterson Institute study, sorry, USIP, uh, citing other think tanks, um, according to Peterson Institute study, the average tariff of a, a non-Chinese good um, going into China was about 8%. It didn't matter where it was coming from, it was about 8%. Um, now, the average tariff of a U.S. good going into China, uh, if the next round of tariffs and retaliatory tariffs go into place in December, will be about 23 to 24 percent of a U.S. good. Uh, a non-U.S. good going into China will be about 6.7 percent tariff. So that doesn't seem to be working for us, at least according to the Peterson Institute numbers. So. I, I would just argue that um, we need a new and different strategy, and this is my, these are my personal views on this. I'm not going to uh, make anyone own them, um, but uh, where we agree, we will agree. Uh, so I put out a, I put out a white paper. Um, it provides a pretty comprehensive view of how we ought to change our strategies uh, towards uh, towards China um, that would 
um, I think remove it from the current moniker of a strategic competitor, um, but still recognize there are areas where we do compete directly. The United States and China do compete directly with China, but there are um, areas where the U.S. and China need to cooperate as well. And I think we're in this world right now where um, where we don't know if uh, we're if we're cooperative competitors or competitive cooperators. Um, really, uh, that's that's my view of it. I would note in um, in conclusion, uh, and when we get to Q and A, we can get in more detail about where are those issues where we cooperate and compete. That the I would note in conclusion that um, from a congressional perspective, uh, I uh, again I'll speak for myself on this. Um, I might be in a minority in Congress. I think in 2005 I might have been in the majority in Congress in terms of engagement. But the the ground has shifted in Congress. Um, if you want to split up members of Congress into three groups on China, there's there are economic hawks, those who look at the trade and economic policies and are, are frustrated with them. National security hawks, those who look at China as a national security competitor. And human rights hawks, those who look at China's human, terrible human rights record, especially look, looking at what they're doing in uh, Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghurs. And uh, those hawks flew separately for the longest time. So long as they did, flew separately, there, there was uh, not a broad-based consensus uh, in Congress to confront China. Those three groups, flocks of hawks, have come together. They have found each other. And that has shifted, and this is my analysis, that has shifted the, the um, foundation in Congress. Um, it is a bipartisan foundation, I would note. Uh, but it's shifted the foundation in Congress to take a more competitive and more uh, confrontational approach than we've had in the past. Not confrontational all the time, but certainly more so than it has in the past. And that's, I think, the current state of uh, current state of play in Congress. Um, and then we'll have a chance to flesh that out maybe through Q&A. But I do want to thank USIP for um, inviting us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks. You might have noticed Rick and I are also members of the Tall Caucus. So uh, um, let me. Uh, uh, thank uh, the U.S. Um, Institute for Peace for putting on this seminar here today, and thank all of you for coming out today for your interest in the subject of China, and uh, look forward to your questions and dialogue and conversation. I think it's important that we have forums like this to engage on the important issues, and there are plenty of them, as Rick just talked about. But I'm honored to serve with Rick as the co-chair of the U.S.-China Working Group. Um, a little bit about the district that I represent, central, west central Illinois. My hometown is Peoria. Uh, and uh, my district, um, I border Iowa and Missouri on my western boundary. I have the Mississippi River. Uh, that is my, my western uh, portion of my district. Um, and uh, my district's a heavy agriculture district. So of the 435 congressional districts, uh, ours is the eighth largest in terms of corn and soybean production. So we got some of the most fertile farmland in the entire world uh, in our district. Uh, Illinois has led the nation for the last five years in soybean uh, production. 25% uh, of our soybeans every year go to China. Uh, much of that is for not for human consumption, but goes to protein to feed animals. But it's a, it's a market that my district is heavily reliant on for, for trade. Um, also, we uh, little known fact, uh, we produce 98% of the pumpkins in the world come from my district. So uh, the, the growing climate for pumpkins 100 miles north of Peoria and 100 miles south of Peoria is perfect. So uh, so uh, anybody wants to come for some pumpkin pie, we 
We'd love to entertain you uh, in central Illinois. Uh, uh, and uh, I also love to tell people a little bit, the district that I represent uh, is the Abraham Lincoln Congressional District. So Lincoln served one term in Congress, 1847 to 1849, and he represented nine counties uh, that one term. I represent all nine of those, and uh, he's buried in my district in Oak Ridge Cemetery. Uh, and so uh, proud to represent the Lincoln District. Um, I have a colleague to the south of me, Congressman Rodney Davis, and he has the Lincoln home in his district. So we get in this argument about who represents, but I have the body, so I take <laughs> credit for uh, representing the, the Abraham Lincoln district, but, but proud of the, the heritage and history. Uh, Everett Dirksen, famous senator, served in this district. Uh, Ronald Reagan was our only president born in Illinois. He was born in Tampico, Illinois, which is about 30 minutes from where I live in Peoria. So anyway, a lot of, lot of heritage in the, in the district that I represent. Um, I've been in Congress for uh, about four years uh, and uh, representing the district that I do. Um, and uh, some people might ask, well, what's your interest in China? Well, I just explained a little bit of that, right? The, having a heavy agriculture district. I also, Caterpillar, uh, which makes a lot of earth-moving products. We, I have the largest concentration of Caterpillar workers anywhere in the world in my district. We make a lot of mining equipment, D10 tractors, excavators, and of course, um, uh, Caterpillar has a, a big footprint in China. They have 29 manufacturing plants in China. They have four R&D facilities, and so, Trade and particularly the relationship with China is important for my district. Um, I'll also tell you, I represent Pekin, Illinois, and you may want to know what that Pekin got its name because if you go through the middle of the earth, you'll be in Peking, China, is, is the origin of that. So uh, I know you guys are getting a lot of uh, facts you didn't, weren't aware of before. But um, anyway, but I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, proud and honored to be part of the working group. Um, and there is a whole plethora of issues that uh, are going on right now. But it's been good for me, parochially for my district, to be engaged on these issues. And uh, uh, I've had the opportunity with Rick to do two bipartisan trips to China. Uh, the most recent one that we did uh, in March uh, was obviously right before the, the trade war really went to another level. But we were in Hong Kong, uh, spent a couple days there, uh, which was very interesting. We were in Hangzhou. Got to visit Alibaba and a number of other companies, and then we spent a lot of time in, in Beijing. But it was a very worthwhile trip. Um, and I would just say this: um, you know, when we think about the trade war, I really it is a trade war. I really think about it as an economic war. Uh, and and when you look at the economics of, you know, who's going to lead the world when it comes to technology, which is a big part of this economic war we're in. Uh, and then lots of other ancillary issues that are out there, whether it's North Korea, whether it's um, Hong Kong, whether it's Taiwan, uh, whether it's the, the human rights issues. Um, Huawei is a big issue, the one belt, one road. Obviously, there are many ancillary issues that, as the working group, uh, Rick and I work with our colleagues uh, to educate them, uh, to get feedback, um, and, and to try to, uh, you know, navigate many of these um, uh, issues that we deal with in China. Uh, from the standpoint is, uh, you know, we have the two largest economies in the world, and we are intertwined in so many ways. Uh, so from an economic standpoint and from a uh, national security standpoint, trying to figure out how you navigate those issues has really been worthwhile for me as we, from a public policy standpoint, try to figure out the right approach moving forward in the Congress. And uh, we, we, I, again, I've enjoyed uh, that opportunity to do that um, and will continue to do that. I would just comment just for a second, you know, obviously the approach that this administration has taken when it comes to China is much different in some respects than what we've had in previous administrations. Uh, you know, uh, 
listen, I'm not a fan of tariffs. Tariffs are taxes. They're taxes on consumers. They're taxes on businesses. But this administration has taken an approach with tariffs uh, that, particularly with China, that's much different, right? And I, I think if you, if you listen to them, what they'll tell you is lots of administrations and presidents over the last 25 years have dealt with China, but they've never got that systemic change that we need. And, and some of the origins of this go back to when we brought China into the World Trade Organization, 2001, 2002. The argument at the time was bring them in. They're going to abide by all the same economic standards that every other industrialized country in the world does or, or, or will do that. Clearly, that hasn't happened on the technology front, the intellectual property front. And so this administration has taken a hard line on that, specifically on how you get that change that we have not been able to get in the past. And so that's why we're in this trade war that we're in right now. And does that affect my farmers? Sure. Does it affect lots of industries in this country? Yes. So how does this all end? I mean, that's, I think we're in kind of uh, unknown territory right now on, on how this trade war, this economic war uh, ends. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of argument that the Chinese are going to wait us out until after the election. Um, but, but drilling down a little bit on the, on the tariff issue, you know, what we're trying to get is um, if you look at the... Um, cases we've had in the World Trade Organization against China, we've had lots of them, I think 18, 19 over the last 15 or 16 years, we've won every one of them, uh, but it takes, you know, some two to four years to win those, right? So it's a very frustrating process. And by the way, we're not the only ones that have these issues with China. The Europeans do, the Japanese do, the Koreans do. So people are watching very closely. In some respects, do I wish we would partner with some of our allies and go after China? Yeah, I think that would have been a better approach. But Clearly, that's not what this administration has, has done. So um, it's a bit of a risky strategy, but in some respects, uh, it, it may help get the, the ultimate resolution that we need. So anyway, uh, lots of issues to talk about today. Uh, happy to be here. And I'll just mention one other thing. Rick and I work a lot on China, but we're also the co-chairs of the soccer caucus. So we enjoy uh, soccer together, too, along with China. So anyway, thank you all. Thank you both for such knowledgeable and thoughtful presentations. I will add one fact to yours, and that is when the USIP legislation was signed by 19, in 1984 in the White House, it was President Reagan who signed it. So I'm sure your district is, is, was cheering with excitement. <laughs> um, and I'm also glad that we're seated, because I am not a member of the Tall Caucus. Um, but um, you know, given that you both talked a lot about your districts as agricultural, some manufacturing, the potential impact of the, the whole trade situation with China. I want to dive right in and, and ask, do you, we're, we're seeing that the trade talks are meant to resume in October. Um, do you see a pathway forward and, and a, a future in which this will be resolved in a way that um, has lesser impact or greater success for the United States and for a trade partnership? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm personally uh, pessimistic. Uh, I think this is the uh, continual story of Charlie Brown and Lucy Van Pelt, um, where uh, Lucy is holding the football and Charlie Brown says, this, this time I'm going to be able to kick it. And then right at that time, Lucy picks it up and Charlie Brown goes flying and lands on his back. Uh, and that, that is what we've seen uh, every time there's an announcement that uh, Chinese uh, interlocutors coming to the U.S. or U.S. interlocutors are going to China. 
that hasn't changed. I see nothing at all that indicates that anything is any different. It is important that we keep talking. That's a positive. But I, don't, I haven't seen anything that has um, changed to ensure that something would be different. I think that the problem that the two countries are facing is that, and this again, this would be my assessment, is that um, the US wants an enforcement mechanism, which is a great thing, but only wants it for China. And China wants an enforcement mechanism that applies to both countries. And we heard this in March as one of the, uh, wasn't necessarily a sticking point. They didn't say it was a sticking point, but did, the Chinese leaders did say that basically enforcement you know, has to be for everybody, not just uh, on China. And unless there's an acceptance, again, this I'm only reflecting here, um, unless there's an acceptance of that point, it's going to be very hard to get a, uh, an agreement. And I would say it, it'll be a re use the word resolution. This will not be a trade deal. It will not be a trade agreement. It will be a re resolution of the problem that we have together. And that's, a, that's about as much as I'm expecting. Are you pessimistic about the potential at all or just about the current strategy? I have my own issues with the current strategy, and I've got a long list of things we ought to be different. We ought to do differently, but it's 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 a list that I'm basically borrowed from other folks too. So I'm not, I'm not alone in that. But but I think th that's not uh, right now um, uh, as important as trying to find a, a way out of the damage that tariffs are doing to uh, the businesses, to consumers, to moms and dads who, according to Forbes, the for uh, Forbes studies say we're going to be paying $1,000 more out of pocket directly due to tariffs that American consumers are. Trying to find a way out of that, I think we've got to try to tackle that problem. Councilman LaHood? Um, a couple points. Um, I, as I mentioned in my comments, I think China probably at this point waits us out until after the election, but there's a couple factors to think about. If you back up, if you go back to earlier this year, January, um, and I think Ambassador Lighthizer, who I have immense respect for, I think he's an extremely capable negotiator. He's been around a long time. He understands China. Um, I think we were 90% there with working on finding a resolution. Uh, of course, the last 10% is always the most difficult part. And I mentioned uh, you know, that enforcement mechanism that Rick talked about, or what I call the hammer over their head that we've never had in the past, putting something in there. For instance, they've talked about a snapback tariff provision, which would be once you sign the agreement uh, in four months from now when China violates it, that instead of going through the World Trade Organization, we would have be able to snap a tariff on. So that's controversial, never been done before. They don't want to agree to that. So, so what could change in terms of, of these negotiations? I mean, listen, I think this administration, one thing they follow and listen to is the stock market, right? I think if you continue to see the economy slide, if that's in fact, and I'm not I don't think that's happening now, but there's some signs. But if trade directly affects the economy, I think um, you know, giving up on the snapback tariff provision, trying to get an agreement. But remember, I think we could have a year ago done a purchase agreement, right? Which lots of other administrations have done. Buy more goods, buy more products, buy more agriculture, but not have that systemic change. So again, I think um, the likelihood is, is probably not good that we get a resolution, but if, if there is, um, you know, uh, if there's a triggering mechanism 
something in the economy, I think that could force the administration to tr try to cut a deal, and I think this president would be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I make another note about that? Of course. Uh, Darren mentioned Ambassador Lighthizer. Um, and as a Democrat, uh, I can think I can accurately say that uh, there's a lot of respect for Ambassador Lighthizer, both in the USMCA negotiations and in trying to uh, work out this, these, these uh, trade uh, problems with China. He has, uh, uh, he has respect from both sides of the aisle. And um, again, I want to be supportive. We all want to be supportive. It's just at some point there is a discussion about is this particular approach working or not. Right, which is a matter of strategy as opposed to politics, right, per se. Right. I, um, I, you were present at the creation of the caucus, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> Makes it sound like it was that long ago. <laughs> 14 years ago. Yeah. Um, in, the, in 14 years, the ground has shifted substantially yeah. in terms of the nature of the relationship, how people view the relationship. You characterized some of that in your opening comments. Um, but you characterized also a more nuanced view um, of the relationship. It, it, how broadly shared is that? And what do you see as uh, the most successful way forward for approaching a very complicated, very important relationship? Uh, yeah, I think that, um, so going back, say, to 2016 before the election uh, and talking with some uh, uh, Democratic foreign policy people who were involved with uh, um, the Clinton campaign and who were in the Obama administration, there was going to be a tougher tack taken on, on China relations uh, even by the, the, a, a new Democratic administration. And um, uh, probably not this particular approach um, that the Trump administration is taking, but but tougher in some respects on, on some on some issues, mainly mainly national security uh, issues. But the so so the the ground is shifting anyway, um, and I think that uh, with uh, the current administration uh, is given I think permission, if you will, uh, for members to, you know, to say what they really think about China, if you will. Uh, but I also think that ends up not being a, a very nuanced approach because, again, we're not going away. China's not going away. We have to think a little bit more long-term and where we want to be in relationship to China on any number of issues. And we might be giving up some of those opportunities um, as a result of a, of a confrontation-first approach on some things, but it, it's an interesting dynamic because the president himself says that he wants to be personal friends with President Xi, while at the same time the administration has a much more confrontational approach with China, and those two don't really match up all the time. Um, but I think that uh, the, maybe the most recent best way to describe it, and I'll conclude on this point with your question, um, in talking with the chairman of the National People's Congress was one of our last meetings. Uh, in, their, in their system, that person's about number three in their, in their hierarchy in the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, and, I, and I said, look, yeah, our relationship over time has been one of a roller coaster, right? A roller coaster goes up and it goes down, it goes up and it goes down. I said, but frankly, right now, I think we're really in a down, we're in a trough in this relationship. And his response was uh, that he, he understands that so long as a roller coaster doesn't go flying off the tracks, you know we'll be you know we'll be okay. So let's just keep the thing on the track, and and work from there. So. 
I, that's a very wise metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and you, Congressman LaHood, you, did you join upon your election to the House? Um, I did not. Uh, it took a little while. There was, um, uh, obviously, I, I mentioned the, the interest in my district with China and the connection. And Mark Kirk, who's a, who's a friend and served in the House and he's from Illinois, he had encouraged me to get involved. Um, and so that's when I did, I got engaged on it. And, um, and again, as I mentioned, I've, I've learned an awful lot in the space and it's been very, very rewarding being part of the, the working group. And so um, uh, it, it's, it's um, I think, serves a very, very good purpose in, in Congress. I would just mention, you talked about how things have changed over time. On the economic side of things, you know, uh, when we look at what's different now in the relationship economically and we, in, this, in this economic war we're in, I think, uh, it, particularly on the, in, on the technology side and intellectual property side, we are in a different era now. And I would just, you know, we lead the world in technology, right? You know, whether it's Amazon or Apple or Google or Microsoft or Facebook, we lead the world and China wants to beat us in that. And it, it, I mentioned earlier these two sets of standards, but it is really, really palpable now, I think, in the tech space on where we're at today. You know, we, we visited, I mentioned Alibaba when we were in China, but you look at a company like Alibaba that comes to the United States, they're treated like any other company, right? They engage in the free market system. We don't ask, well, how you built your cloud services or what your trademarks are, your patents. But when technology companies go to China, and this is really the, the core of, of what's different now, I mean, they, they can't operate, right? Because they want to know how you built your cloud services, you know, what went into that. You have to partner with a Chinese company, and they have to own 51%. You know, th this is stuff that's unheard of anywhere else in the world, and that has really caused a lot of pain and a frustration. And does China want to beat us in technology? Of course they do. Do they want to replicate or, or in some ways steal many of our... Uh, technologies, absolutely, and that has caused a lot of friction in this relationship. Uh, and balancing those needs, I think they cross, uh, you know, political boundaries and uh, ideological boundaries in that space. And and I think that has been, uh, you know, again, this relationship with China, you know, 40 years as today talks about, has been ups and downs. But I think right now that that is a real core principle of what is causing a lot of the friction. It's, it's often hard to keep the nuances of a big, conf complicated relationship in focus. Do you think that within the caucus, we're able to do that? I think we give it our best shot. Um, I, I think if you've heard nothing today, understand members of Congress represent the districts they come from. And, and the, how that relates to your question is that um, we are all individually going to think about what is happening in, you know, what's happening in my district? How, does it, how should it impact my outlook? Because it will impact how I can best represent the people that live in my district. And that's going to be different mm -hmm. for members and for every member. Uh, Mark Kirk had a great, had a great uh, saying about the U.S. China Working Group. He said that uh, we'll take anybody. Right? We'll take panda huggers. We'll take dragon slayers, and we'll take panda slayers. Um, his never point, popular. Never popular, but his point was we were ecumenical uh, or agnostic when it came to what a member of Congress brought to the table because if this was a forum about education, 
and um, opening up minds and learning from each other. It wasn't about we're doing it this way, and if you don't like that, then you can't participate. And there have been some groups, in the ad hoc groups in Congress on China, that have taken more of that approach. We're doing it this way or, or not a different way. I would just add, you know, in many ways, our policy is like other things in our government is dictated by our participatory democracy. What what members are feeling, whether it's what they're hearing back home or how this relationship with China is affecting them, drives policy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that reflects our district. We got to go back and get elected every two years, and you got to go back and talk to folks. And I think that political pressure, um, which of course. China doesn't have, right? They can play the long game a lot better from us. They don't have an upcoming election or any elections. They're going to have constituencies that, um, you know, press on them the way that ours do. And so, um, you know, they're, they're, in some ways, uh, they, again, have the, have the long-term strategy. But in our democracy, I think that helps drive a lot of how we react and what we do. And I think you've seen that with the, the Trump administration. I mean, there is, there is really... On trade in general and on China, you have you you have two different views within the White House. You have the the, the real China hawks there, mm -hmm. and you have the more um, you know trade oriented folks in there. And there, I mean, th th these are battles and ideological discussions that go on often. And I would say, the president has sided with the the, the hawks on most of this uh, instead of with the the more free traders uh, in there. And I think that's been reflective about where we're at right now. So one final question, I want to open it up and get questions from all of you. Um, you alluded to this in your opening comments, uh, Congressman Larson. Um, we are seeing the rising concerns about the rights of the Uyghurs. Um, everyone's watched the marches that have gone on in Hong Kong. How do we factor in those human rights concerns against a variety of priorities in the relationship? Well, I think. Um, start broadly, um, we need to decide uh, if, in fact, the tradition of democracy promotion and human rights promotion is part of our foreign policy or not. And if it is, then it is an issue for us. Um, and that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's in China or if it's Saudi Arabia or anywhere else. It's either part of our foreign policy tradition that we're going to put resources and rhetoric behind um, or we're not going to do that. And uh, uh, I happen to think that it is, and it is an issue that uh, this particular issue of the um, Chinese government treatment of the Uyghurs is an issue that we brought up in meeting with the Chinese leaders. Uh, we got, you know, I, the, the response we got is the response that you can all, you can all read about. Uh, it's the same one. The talking points are really clear from the Chinese. That these are re-education camps. They're just trying to help people with workforce development. and. I didn't, didn't realize a million people needed help with workforce development or re-education, but apparently that's, according to the Chinese, that's the case. Uh, I don't believe them. I don't believe the Chinese leadership on that. And in Hong Kong, we met with uh, young people uh, involved with the uh, umbrella movement um, as well, and uh, young people that you're reading about in the paper today. And again, our response ought to be um, consistent with what our response has been. And I will say this, that. Chinese leadership doesn't like that when we say that, but that's, you don't have a relationship between countries because uh, the other country gets to dictate what your views should be. You, you get to dictate what your views are and communicate them and find ways to promote them. 
So um, that's the principle that I think we need to continue to stand behind. And, and uh, uh, I will say, uh, in going to Hong Kong, we had quite a bit of negotiation about meeting with some of these folks. And our staff did a, a masterful job of making sure that we stayed on the straight and narrow to, um, in talking with the, the Chinese leaders to, to uh, emphasize the fact that this was an important part of our trip and uh, a necessary part of our trip. Anything to add? I, I would just, you know, um, again, I go back to the issues that, you know, in the last administration, there was a real emphasis on the South China Sea, more on Taiwan, and on human rights, I think. And in some ways, those have kind of evaporated in terms of, you know, the economic issues uh, here that have kind of come front and center. So, I mean, again, it's a reflection of our elections have changes, right? They have policy differences and and you know you, you see that uh, from administration to administration on this but there is not uh, and then Rick's correct I mean much of our foreign policy has been premised on human rights all around the world and that has gone from administration to administration but putting a priority on that I, I don't think um, has been part of this administration on that and I think that's reflective with with the Uyghurs and I would also say with the Uyghurs too you know um, I, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that these other Muslim countries in the world, whether it's Saudi Arabia or others, mm -hmm. don't seem to have any sympathy for the Uyghurs, right? And that may be because of their relationship with China, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit disappointing not to see the consistency that we've seen in the past. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to open it up. I'm going to take three questions in a row. And take those and you all can answer both of them. So I, actually, I want to start with uh, one of the University of Washington students. Any questions from that group? She's one, yeah. Are you from what? Oh, yeah. Yep, go for it. Hi. Prove it. Microphone. Where do you live? Prove it. Where do you live? Everett, Washington. All right. And my district. All right. Yes. <laughs> and my two children, like your two children, are also fifth generation for our county. Oh, yeah. And they are also fellow Huskies. Okay. So yeah. I'm a student as well. That's great. I'm currently researching for the protection of the human rights of the yeah. protesters in Hong Kong. I'm interested to know your position on the bill that's been reintroduced, the bipartisan bill for the human rights of the Hong Kong protesters, 3289? Uh, I don't have the, the details on 3289. Okay. But don't, don't, I would say, don't give me bill numbers. Tell me what the bill does. I got a lot of, I got a lot of stuff in my head if you just kind of Absolutely. remind me. It's to annually review the special sanction or the special um, authority that's been given to yeah. them annually yeah. so that we can be monitoring them. So uh, thanks, yeah. So we have a, a mechanism currently in US law to evaluate uh, human rights progress uh, and maintenance and democracy progress and maintenance in, in Hong Kong. And um, there's an effort to, uh, through this bill, I believe, I believe this is the particular bill, this effort to actually more deliberately connect um, U.S. economic and trade policy to Hong Kong with that progress. That is, we treat Hong Kong like it's, uh, it is, it is, you know, it's a special administrative region of China, but it is also uh, generally a free market uh, currency uh, exchange. It's an important, uh, important stock exchange in the, in, the, in, the, in the region. And the question is whether we should um, uh, treat Hong Kong 
uh, more aggressively, negatively, because of lack of progress in human rights. And this is where the, um, this conflict of human rights and the economy come into play. Uh, I, I've currently, cur my current thinking on 3289 is that we ought not to do it, that we ought to um, uh, uh, be better about our position, about our rhetoric, about how we uh, view the protests in Hong Kong. Because right now the message is coming out of the United States. They're not, they're not negative, but they're not supportive. We're right now we're trading off the relationship with Beijing for the Hong Kong protesters. And if we want to, I, I think we need to first start to say that the Hong Kong administration needs to be responsive to the concerns that the protesters are bringing up. I'm not going to say they should accept all the demands. That's not my job to say. But um, uh, pulling back, uh, withdrawing the extradition bill when Executive Lamb did uh, was a good thing, and it was way too late because mm -hmm. the demands have built up behind that. Other demands have built up, other legitimate demands have built up behind that. And we need to be saying that, and we're really not pushing that point at all. So I think before we get to legislation on like 3289, we have, it's not that we don't have a mechanism in place in the law. We do have a mechanism of review in place in, in, in the law. But we're also not backing that up, like I said, with resources and with rhetoric, especially with the rhetoric. What is coming out of our State Department um, or out of, mainly out of the administration? Um, and I promise to take a question then from the Stanford group. Is there, yeah, go ahead. Is there a Stanford student from Illinois? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Okay, you're next. <laughs> so all, you're members of Congress. We're just all local all the time. Um, my name is Antigone Xenopoulos, and I'm from the CSAC cohort. And I'm planning to write my thesis about why the US allowed itself to become economically dependent on China for some critical dual-use industries. Um, my question is, earlier on in your, or in your opening remarks, Representative Larson, you mentioned that there are sort of three camps of concern regarding China, economic, national security, and human rights. Um, and I was wondering if either of you could, A, characterize some of the shared concerns between the economic hawks and the national security hawks, and B, try to explain perhaps why it took so long for those two camps to come together and to realize that their concerns vis-a-vis -vis China were interlinked. Okay, before you answer that, we're gonna take the Illinois point of view as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jonah Glickontriman. I'm from the 9th District. Okay. Big Illinois fan. Yeah. And <laughs> it's a great state. And um, I'm wondering whether you think there's any chance for any arms control with China, whether it's in hypersonics or new missiles, nuclear, and what would your strategy be to get them involved in some kind of effort? Okay, two small little questions. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'll take, uh, Rick serves on armed services, so I may have him take the defense question. But on, on your question, um, as it related to the three different groups, um, you know, I mean, uh, politically, you know, uh, all of these groups have kind of come together in an adversarial approach towards China. And I think they're willing to put aside some of our political differences, maybe party differences, because they, they know the, the broader, um, I think, approach towards China, I think, um, you know, to achieve what we want to do. 
I mean, listen, China hasn't had a very good record on human rights. We haven't got them to change that. And so, you know, whether, again, it's conservative Republicans that believe in human rights and religious freedoms, you know, they're, they're willing to partner with the, you know, the more traditional human rights activists. And I think you've seen that in the Senate and in the House, um, again, to, to achieve the broader goals of, of bringing change to China on that, putting the pressure on there. And again, I think th that crosses lines when you talk about the economic hawks and the national security hawks uh, with, you know, we've been dealing with China. It's a, it's a communist country. And I think the other thing that's been impactful, I, I mentioned the one belt, one road, but you look at China's influence whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Pakistan, whether it's in Myanmar, we haven't talked a lot about that, but, but they're pushing out around the world, right, to be an alternative to us and what we've done, I think has affected a lot of members of Congress too. There is a, uh, I think there's some sec there's security fears on that and them pushing their agenda. Now, I tend to think, I mean, a lot of people have been scared and worried about that approach. Um, uh, we had a conversation earlier on this you know, if you look at what China's done, in particular in Africa, you know, much of the fear that was there that, oh, they're going to establish places there and, and they're going to take over and have natural resources, much of the work they've done there has been, in some ways, inferior. It hasn't been what it was supposed to be. There was a lot of talk about, you know, African uh, laborers being involved with it, but they brought in a lot of Chinese labor. And so I don't know that um, their original goal and their intent has come to fruition on that. But clearly in Southeast Asia, they, are, they have been very, very aggressive on this, and we have not. And so, uh, you know, having an approach, whether it's through Congress or the administration, that focuses on that, I think is important. But I think that's affected those three groups coming together, is their continued outward push in the region and how that affects that. Right. Um, so I'll just, uh, I, let me, I think in two sentences I can give you my view on this, because Darren's really covered a lot of it. I just would ask you, we have a, I have a white paper and anyone can have it. While you're looking at everything China is doing, look at the things that the United States is not doing, okay? We're playing defense and we're playing very little offense. And I don't mean offense against China. I'm like, what are we doing to take care of ourselves? Um, spending all this time stopping China while not doing enough to promote the United States. So I just as a theme. Or invest in certain key Yeah, sectors. right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's, it's all in the white paper. It's small font. It's very long. <laughs> I can't read it anymore. My eyes are bad. Um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief. Uh, are there areas to cooperate on, on, on the defense side or security side of the thing? Well, where does this go? I think there's three areas where there's, um, I, don't think, I don't think we're going to get an arms control agreement with China on hypersonics. Um, uh, let me say that. But on cyber uh, attacks, on artificial intelligence, and on space are three areas that might offer some level of time to, worth, to make it worth exploring. Right? How is artificial intelligence going to be used in national security? And are there um, rules of the road that ought to be applied on how we use AI in in, in the military, in warfare, in decision-making. Um, uh, on cybersecurity and cyber attacks, uh, there, in the last years of the Obama administration, Congress passed and the administration implemented um, a law 
on espionage, on industrial espionage cyber attacks. And it, and it did actually decrease the number of attacks for espionage purposes. But it required continual attention and implement, implementation. And that hasn't occurred in this administration. So there was a response to China that we wanted to see. There was a decrease. So I think we need to look at cybersecurity and cyber attacks from a military perspective or defense perspective, understanding what um, some of the rules of the road are and whether or not we're willing to um, word is, uh, attribute attacks. So if we're attacked in, in the cyber realm, if we're willing to attribute those attacks, that is say, well, we know who did it, um, that has a, a deterrence effect itself. And having that discussion with China and Russia and other countries that you read about um, would be valuable. And in space, space is a space is the final frontier. Um, space is an area that is probably the quintessentially most important part of our economy, uh, China's economy, Russia's economy, everyone's economy, how we use space. And so having rules of the road in space is important too. They're just areas to explore. There may be different mechanisms you want to choose, but those would be areas to look at. Great. We're going to take two final questions. Please be short, and then we'll need to wrap. So I'm going to go here, and we, are you Go ahead. Some? Just start talking and, while she's deciding. And there. <laughs> Hi. My name is Elena Crespo, and I'm here with the Stanford group as well. Um, would either of you mind speaking to how the success of our domestic policy impacts our relationship with China, particularly around educational exchange? Okay, and then back in the middle of the back row. Raise your hand again. Oh, no, 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 right in front of you. Yes. The other guy. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, my question is from a human rights your perspective. Name per, uh, please. I'm Philip Redlich. From a human rights perspective, would it ever be in the United States' interest to consider gently helping or guiding the Belt and Road Initiative instead of opposing or dismissing it? Okay. I would just on, on your question about uh, our um, about America's domestic um, uh, policy and about education. You know, you look at the numbers of Chinese that come to American educational institutions. University of Illinois, our flagship university in in, in the state of Illinois, is you know, I think we're up to fourteen percent of our students are from from China. It's one of the highest percentages anywhere in the country. Um, and, and, you know, it's one of the biggest demands of our university is Chinese students that come here. And, and, you know, many of them are so proud to be here and engage in our educational system and want to stay. And I think that's very powerful for the relationship. And the more exchanges we can have with young people culturally, educationally, I think is, is really fundamental to the relationship to learn. I wish we reciprocated that more in China. I mean, we're starting to do that a little bit, and there's some organizations that are very involved with that and good people that want to do that. But, but the more understanding on our side, I think, um, can be very, very helpful. But the more people can see our country and, and, uh, and engage uh, in what our country offers and see how our democracy and freedoms and all those things work, doesn't mean we don't have challenges and problems and difficulties, but I think when you have that, I think there's tremendous benefit that comes out of that long term. Uh, and I, again, I'm a strong proponent of promoting those. And I think that helps us long term when we get to these public policy issues that you know, can be thorny and difficult long term. But that, that fundamental understanding 
of the two countries is vitally important. You know, one thing that Rick and I have done on a number of our trips, we meet with the Schwarzman Scholars over there, mm -hmm. which is a tremendous program. It's small, but it's, it's kind of like the Rhodes Scholarship of China, right? Top quality young men and women that go over to China and spend a year or two years there and engage. And you look at the ramifications of that positive, I think can be really, really helpful. And so the more we can do that uh, will help us long term. Yeah. Excellent. And on the, Last on word the, to you. Yeah, on the BRI uh, Belt Road Initiative, here's an area where we're playing a lot of defense and we're not playing a lot of offense. Um, we passed the Build Act uh, last year, uh, which was um, expanded to, uh, created a new International Finance Development Corporation, uh, expanded OPIC um, uh, capabilities, but we're still sort of taking a rifle shot to this issue instead of playing big and the in the larger development space. To give you an example, I was in Rwanda in August and we met with President Kagame there. And uh, I won't mention the country he had visited, but he had visited a European country. And of course, he was there to talk about investment in Rwanda um, with, the, with the Chamber of Commerce group in this particular country. Well, then he met with the leader of that particular country who was literally on that leader's way to China the next day, right? And that leader of that European country was lecturing Kagame about China's investment in Rwanda. And he pointed out to this leader, he said, well, why are, you, why are you lecturing me about Chinese investment in Rwanda when you're headed to China tomorrow to talk to get the Chinese to invest in your country? Right? The point, his point being is like, you know, we're, don't, don't lecture us. You know, this is just one data point, right? Don't lecture us about Chinese investment in, in Africa when you're going to China yourself to get to deal with investment in your own country. So we get to play in this too. And I think his broader point is they're, they're kind of agnostic. And, and I don't know if every country involved in BRI is receiving that investment is agnostic. I'm not going to make that point. But there are some that are. So what can we offer? What can the US offer? both in competition, so they give the choice, choice presumably gets you a better price, um, as well as a direct US foreign policy initiative to say the US is here too. And that's what I mean by going on offense and not just playing defense all the time. It just drives me crazy. Congressman Larson, Congressman LaHood, thank you for taking time out of very busy schedules to, to join us for this conversation. We appreciate it. I think this has been a terrific, very thoughtful conversation. Thank you for your bipartisan spirit to work on tough issues. Please join me in thanking our thank congressman today. Thank you. thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.